production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Friday, December 10th, and I'm Kristen Baird Adams, President of the City Club Board of Directors and Chief of Staff of PNC's National Office of the Regional Presidents. I'm pleased to introduce today's speaker, David Harris, Chief Executive Officer of the American Jewish Committee the leading global Jewish advocacy organization. From city halls to Capitol Hill, at the United Nations and in global capitals, AGC works to impact policy and opinion on the most critical issues facing the Jewish people. Harris's passion for his work in his 30 plus year tenure at AGC is inspired by his late parents, both Holocaust survivors. Harris grew up in New York City's Upper West Side, anchored by generations of a close-knit family. And while during his youth, his family never hosted a Shabbat dinner, his parents and the stories they shared of struggle and survival inspired him. Widely recognized for his skilled diplomacy and vision, Harris has led AGC's efforts to combat the troubling resurgence of anti-Semitism here in the US and across the globe. And to advocate for the nation of Israel, and to build bridges with allies across the nation and the world. Harris first joined AGC in 1979, departing briefly in the mid-80s for a role advocating for Soviet Jewry before returning as its Washington director, a role in which he helped lead a 1987 rally of 250,000 on the National Mall, one of the largest ever gatherings of American Jews. Just a few years later, Harris was credited for his leadership in the successful lobbying of the UN's General Assembly in 1991 to reverse its 1975 Zionism is Racism resolution, one of the few times in its history that the UN repealed a resolution. More recently, in January of 20, Harris led a historic delegation of Muslims and Jews to visit Auschwitz. Harris has been honored by more than 20 times by foreign governments for his international work, making him the most decorated American Jewish organizational leader in US history. Educated at the University of Pennsylvania and London School of Economics, he has been a visiting scholar at Johns Hopkins University and Oxford University. Today, Harris, who has announced his plans to retire in May, joins us for the annual Robert D. Grease Forum on Inspiration, invitations to which are only extended to speakers who, by way of their achievements, reflect a level of accomplishment well beyond the ordinary. Members and friends of the City Club, please join me in welcoming American Jewish Committee CEO, David Harris. Thank you, Kristen. Uh, I'm really quite moved by the introduction. 
Uh, it's my third time at the City Club, and I'm grateful to this uh, venerable beacon of freedom and bastion of democracy to have the privilege of being back here. Dan, thank you. I, I walked into the room, and I immediately, though, had a, a crisis, which I'm, I need to share with you. I saw two tables in my line of vision, <clears throat> and the first one said speakers, and the second one <clears throat> said friends of Bob Grease. <laughs> uh, and my wonderful City Club hosts were kind of nudging me towards the speaker's table. <laughs> but I, I had a kind of outside force pulling me to the other table. And I really wanted to set myself up uh, right there in that spot <laughs> between the two tables. If I had to summarize the American Jewish Committee in simply one image, it's Bob Grease. Thank you, Dan. If I could add an image, it's Lisey Shapiro. Our And I think I better, better get off because this becomes a slippery slope. <laughs> I, I've learned in life the people that you mention never remember you mention them, and the people you omit never forget. <laughs> Jill, our president, our former presidents and other members of the board who are sitting at this and other tables, again, thank you. I, I was invited to do something I've, I've really never done before, which is itself quite a challenge given 40 or more years of public life. And that was not to look ahead so much as to look back, to offer a retrospective of sorts. <clears throat> so join with me on this, um, for me, very unusual journey. As Kristen said, the journey for me began in my home. It wasn't immediately apparent to me that it would. I thought I was just another New York City kid. For those of you who will admit to being from New York, um, playing stoop ball and handball and uh, playing in the basketball courts of Riverside Drive and going to camp in Maine. I thought I was just a normal American kid. But there was something different. It took me a while. And then I began to understand. I was the first person in my extended family to be born in the United States. My family cherished this country. For them, this was holy ground. I was just a kid who liked some things and criticized other things. And then I ran into resistance from my family when the criticism came. Don't ever forget the precious gift that America has given us. Freedom, safety, opportunity. Bless this country. I learned some other things. My parents started a sentence in one language and never finished it in the same language. 
I had to become pretty adept pretty quickly at sorting this out. And when there were larger family gatherings, there were at least four languages being spoken all at once and sometimes again in the same sentences. Now, why was this? Other kids, when I went to visit them, spoke English at home. My parents with each other spoke French. My mother with her parents who lived in the next apartment spoke Russian. My father with his parents who lived a few blocks away spoke German. On top of which, my grandfather got the Yiddish newspaper every morning uh, delivered to his door. What was going on here? And then there was something else. I mentioned a moment ago summer camp. Well, my parents talked about camps. But they didn't have politically incorrect names of Native Americans. Pocahontas and Hiawatha and Powhatan. There were very different camps that they were speaking about. And so I began to understand that something more was going on here. And lastly, my parents and my larger family spoke about Israel but not the Israel of daily politics or whatever might be reported in the news, but Israel in a much, I didn't know the word at the time, but in a much more metaphysical way, uh, in a much more philosophical way. Thank God there's an Israel. Now, it's hard for a child of six, seven, eight, nine, ten to process any, much less all of this stuff. But over time, I came to understand several things which led me to this career and, in a way, to this moment, thanks to you, Bob, and, and this speaker's series. My mother was born in Moscow. My mother was six years old when her family were among the very lucky ones to be able to leave Stalin's Soviet Union at a time when emigration did not exist. They happened to have an apartment that an NKVD, now KGB official, wanted, and he traded them the apartment for four passports. Later on, he would have just seized the apartment. But then there was still apparently a measure of, quote, civility. So my mother became a refugee with her parents at the age of six. They came to France. France welcomed them in 1929. They started over, new language, new culture, new everything. And then 11 years later, the France that they thought was their secure, democratic home the home of the rights of man, les droits de l'homme, the home of liberté, égalité, fraternité, fell quickly to the invading German forces. And moreover, as many of you know, France quickly saw the emergence of a collaborationist regime, Vichy, which participated in the arrest and deportation of French Jews and others. At the age of 17, my mother was again a refugee. 
together with her family and countless others. And they fled to the south. They fled to Toulouse and then Bordeaux and eventually to Marseille. And what did they discover in their 17 months of fleeing and hiding and fearing? That the vast majority of the world did not give a damn about their fate. Before Auschwitz, before Treblinka, before Belzitz, Hitler had teased the world, taunted the world, you want the Jews, take them. There was even a 1938 conference at Evian. That's why I still have difficulty drinking the bottles of water because I don't associate the name with H2O alone. Where the world's nations gathered allegedly to address the refugee problem. And each country found a reason or an excuse or a pretext to avoid the refugee problem. Eventually, Eventually, my family was able to escape to Spain and then Portugal. And one member who had gotten here earlier and who moved to a city called Mahoney City in northeast Pennsylvania persuaded a congressman, maybe part of my nonpartisan approach to life, turned out a Republican congressman named Ivor Fenton to persuade a reluctant U.S. government to issue 14 visas to that part of my family. And they came on the eve of Pearl Harbor. And they saw the Statue of Liberty not on the circle line. It wasn't just a photo op. They saw in the Statue of Liberty their future. They never looked in the rearview mirror. Europe had expelled them. America was to be their home. And they understood the social contract implicitly. It was a two-way bargain. America gave them the chance. Tragically, not enough Jews were given the chance, but my family was, that part of the family. And my family understood from day one, it's give-back time, something that I think is lost, Dan, too often in today's America both the appreciation for what this country has meant to millions of refugees and also the notion of a social contract. Meanwhile, my father, born in Hungary, had moved to Berlin at the age of one with his parents. And in 1933, after the January 30th ascension to the chancellorship of Adolf Hitler, and then the March 23rd enabling act of the Bundestag, which gave Hitler complete and total power, including to bypass the Bundestag or the parliament, if you will. They made a fateful decision and sent my father and only child to safekeeping in, of all places, Vienna. It wasn't the wisest decision. Five years later, my father was a refugee as well, having escaped from Austria after the Anschluss. And he came to France, which, by the way, is where my parents first met as teenagers. My father's story is longer and it's more difficult, but it involved imprisonment for three years by the Vichy, 
escape on the second attempt, crossing the Sahara Desert, not quite in the way you did it, Bob, but <laughs> if he were alive, you might be able to share some stories. Uh, joining OSS, the wartime uh, espionage agency of the United States, parachuting behind enemy lines, and then Colonel Wild Bill Donovan, if you know the name, the founder of OSS, brought him to the United States to help create the CIA. But here came another, if you will, true blue new American who fought for the United States even before he ever saw the United States. And like my mother understood the eternal gratitude that was required both to this country and to the promise of this country. And as if that weren't enough to cement my kind of Weltanschauung, as the Germans would say, my worldview, a few years later, I met a young woman in Rome, Italy, where I was working with Jewish refugees from the Soviet Union. That young woman became my wife of now 46 years. And she too was a refugee. She was a refugee from a place that has been largely neglected by history, Libya. It's still difficult to penetrate the mindset as we speak about the Middle East and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and all of the dimensions thereof. It's still so incredibly tough to penetrate and remind the world that there were two refugee populations, not one. There were two. And exhibit A for the second is my wife, her seven siblings, her parents, all of whom were forced into hiding in Tripoli and eventually given safe passage by the Italian ambassador, never to return. Their first taste of freedom, and a word they had never heard before, pluralism, came in Italy. And then, 12 years later, she and I came to the United States she for the first time, and we built a family and a home together. This is where I come from. I come from a family, if you will, that has no CVs with PhDs in history, no BAs with majors in history. They all have PhDs in the history of life. They've lived it. They haven't just studied it or abstracted it. They felt it. And they've understood, and now I understand, the thin veneer, the fragility of what we call liberal democracy. And when I use the word liberal, I don't mean it in a binary context versus conservative. I mean it versus illiberal versus the people's democracy that we saw in the Cold War or the Democratic Republic of North Korea, as it officially calls itself. Because after all, Germany was a democracy from 1919. It was a messy, chaotic democracy called Weimar, but it was a democracy with elections and free speech and civic institutions 
and multiple political parties. It was all that and more. And by 1933, that democracy had yielded to absolute tyranny. So from my perspective, living in a democracy is not just about exploiting it, savoring it, it's about defending it. Because my family could bear witness to the fact that it's not guaranteed to last. And my wife could add to the picture by saying, remember, the majority of nations today are not democracies. I, Julieta, came from Libya. I can attest to what the absence of democracy means. In this case, for a minority like the 40,000 Jews, who were essentially denied all rights, by the way, though they were all enshrined in the 1951 Libyan Constitution, which launched the independence of Libya. It's a beautiful document. The problem is it's completely meaningless. So words alone are insufficient. And frankly, I'm not here to flatter the city club and you, though I hope you won't reject the flattery. <laughs> but for me, and I just know a little bit about the history of this, of this institution, you're more essential than ever. Bottom line, you're more essential than ever. But how did I move from this into specifically the Jewish world? Well, in the 1970s, having been to college and being in graduate school and thinking about life, some things happened that reminded me that Jewish history had not ended, neither with the end of the Holocaust in 1945, nor with the rebirth of the State of Israel in 1948, and I emphasize the word rebirth. It hadn't ended. In the 1970s, what happened? Well, for one thing, Soviet Jews behind the Iron Curtain began very courageously and very improbably to shout, Atpusti narod moi. Those who spoke Hebrew said, Shelach et ami. Those who spoke neither said, Let my people go. Now, to understand this, while my mother and her family had left under Stalin, the word emigratia, emigration, did not exist in the Soviet lexicon. Borders were built in the Soviet Union not to keep out people out. Borders were built in the Soviet Union to keep people in. And those brave Jews said, we will not be party to a modern-day policy of cultural genocide that seeks to extinguish every last vestige of Jewish life 30 years after Hitler almost succeeded in extinguishing every last vestige of physical life of the Jewish people. In 1973, Egypt and Syria, on the holiest day of the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, launched a surprise attack. And in the early days of that conflict, Israel was pushed back, 
its future became uncertain, and all eyes turned to the United States, and in particular to one man reviled by many, and his name was Richard Nixon. That's where I not only got my lesson in democracy, but also in nonpartisanship. Because I understood in that moment that if I really care about the, the safety and success of the state of Israel, it's not a matter of whether I voted for Richard Nixon or not, or like Richard Nixon or not. He was sitting in the White House, and he had the power either to authorize or deny Israel the spare parts and the resupply that would, would be necessary for Israel to continue the war and hopefully succeed and enter from my life the word nonpartisanship. Similarly with Soviet Jewry, because as those voices were suddenly being heard in Washington and elsewhere, it wasn't about choosing my favorite government or political party. If the United States was going to assist millions of Jews and others trapped inside the Soviet Union, we had to be able to reach the decision makers and hopefully influence their outlook. And so Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives, urban, suburban, rural, to me, it was all the same. Each had a voice and each had a vote. And we needed to reach them. And we did, and they responded. And then I saw something else in those formative years for me. And Kristen, you referred to it in your introduction. In 1975, the United Nations, which had been built on the ashes of the Second World War and the Holocaust, which was committed to preventing future war and future genocide, witnessed its General Assembly adopt Resolution 3379, what became known, as Kristen said, as the so-called Zionism is Racism Resolution. And ladies and gentlemen, Zionism, which is no more and no less than the National Liberation Movement of the Jewish people, the age-old quest for self-determination, the effort to reconstitute a Jewish state after its destruction in the first century was now deemed a form of racism. No other, no other attempt at this kind of reestablishment of national sovereignty was addressed by the United Nations in the same way. Only this one. And of course, what was particularly painful for people like myself, I was 26 years old at the time, was that not only did I believe that Zionism was anti-racism, not only had I read Theodore Herzl, the founder of modern-day Zionism, talking about the fact that once a Jewish state was reestablished, the next project of the Jewish people would be to help the people of Africa, of Africa to achieve their national independence, their national sovereignty, their national liberation. But those of us of my generation here, 
also saw ourselves as soldiers in the anti-racist movement in the United States. Now we were being told that whatever we were doing in the civil rights movement, whatever we were doing in Selma and Montgomery, nonetheless branded us as racist because we also had an attachment to the foundation of the Jewish people, the connection between a people and a land and a faith. I remember when I was younger, 1959, my parents, they got a car. It's a big deal. And Eisenhower had built this national highway system. So the idea of a long car trip was not daunting, it was exciting. And they drove to Florida for the first time. And they left me behind with my maternal grandparents. And when they came back a week later, they brought coconuts and fun things. And I said, Mommy, Daddy, how was the trip? And they turned pale. These Holocaust survivors had never expected to encounter what they saw when they crossed the Mason-Dixon line. How could they reconcile the country that had given them Home, haven, safety, opportunity, security. How could that same country, just a few hundred miles south of New York City, create separate accommodations, separate water fountains, separate swimming pools, separate and unequal, separate and unequal? And so many Jews, as you know, were motivated to fight in that civil rights struggle. And AJC fought for the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and marched and prayed with our feet, to quote Ab uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, and not just with our mouth. And now we were being told that we were racist? No, I understood that whatever other career aspirations I might have had, let someone else do them. I was gonna jump in with both feet into this Jewish world about which I still knew very little. The organizational world was a baffling alphabet soup. It was pre-Google. There was no simple way to find out what this or that organization did. So I had to do it the old-fashioned way, ask. <laughs> find the mavens, you know, the person whose uncle was involved in that thing called the Jewish world and talk to that uncle or whoever it might be. And I found AJC in 1979. I think I can probably safely say that I, I'm off probation. <laughs> what did I find in AJC? I found the perfect match between everything that I was kind of experiencing and feeling and trying to put together into something coherent. Because in this organization, I found the ideal blend of the universal and the particular. I understood it, that this was an institution, and there were very few, that grasped that the universal condition mattered to us. That if any group was oppressed, if any group was targeted with separate and unequal, none of us were safe, secure, and no democracy 
could be worthy of its name. But it also understood that the universal did not, did not exempt us from the particular. Who was going to speak for the Jews of the Soviet Union if they had no voice of their own? Who was going to stand up to the defamation of the state of Israel year after year? Who was going to speak up for tens of thousands of Jews in Ethiopia that had lived for thousands of years without knowing that their, the Zion of their prayers, the Jerusalem, the Yerushalayim of their prayers, had now become the reality of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. Who was going to speak for them? And to my mind, it became AJC. And to those who wondered, is there some internal contradiction between the universal and the particular? I would say quite the opposite. No democracy worth its name can live with a persecuted minority. And if there's a persecuted minority, and too often the Jews have been referred to as the proverbial canary in the mine, by the way, a reference that I think we all need to reject and eject, because I'll be damned if I'm going to die so the coal miner can live. The methane gas reaches the canary, the canary begins to gasp and keel over. The miner has been warned and flees. Thankfully, the miner is saved. But 2,000 years of being the purported canary in the mine is a bit too much, certainly for my taste. But we're here to say that a world in which anti-Semitism again in 2021 is growing is a world that is becoming more dangerous for all and challenges the basic tenets of the liberal democracy that unites us in this room in Cleveland. Anti-Semitism is not a proprietary Jewish problem. Anti-Semitism should be our collective universal problem, just as racism and xenophobia and homophobia are our collective problems. And I've understood the only way to win is to stand shoulder to shoulder. And the only way to win is to cut down on the sleep because our adversaries are not sleeping. They're not sleeping. And we've had tastes just in recent months and years. Had my parents been here, they would have said, we told you so. We've had tastes of just how thin that veneer of democracy can be, even in what many believe is a stable, secure, strong democracy. So let's be reminded. Let's be reminded that we may not complete the task as the first century Rabbi Tarfon said, but nor are we free to desist from the task. On your watch, on my watch, on the watch of those listening and viewing, I submit 
that everyone who cares about fundamental liberal democratic values, the values that have animated robust democracies, need to be heard, seen, and acting. So City Club brings us together. The real question in my mind, not just for myself, but for all of us is, what happens tomorrow? And what do we do the day after? If we all do something a little different, then perhaps this conversation will have served this purpose. Thank you. We're about to begin, we're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from all, City Club members, guests, students, or those of you joining us via our live stream or the radio broadcast on 90.3 IdeaStream Public Media. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it to at the City Club. You can also text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794 and our staff will tr do their best to work, that work your questions into the program. May we have the first question, please. It was a very moving speech, and I'm uh, impressed with your background and how you su survive. My question is, in your statement, you said, uh, the, I missed the point that you didn't say Islamophobia when you talked about LBGT and other. And I'll give you two examples. One of them is the World Trade Center mosque that was supposed to be built. AJC and other organizations uh, opposed it and 10, 12 years later apologized for that. And then the recent um, uh, thing that you had on France that all the Muslims that are coming to France are anti-Semitic. I'm involved in the interfaith community I'm not anti-Semitic, and the community here knows that, and it pains me to read that the perception that exists within the Jewish Federation, as well as from AJC, that all Muslims are anti-Semitic. Thank you, sir. Um, uh, the answer is a very simple one. Uh, I cannot speak for every Jew or every Jewish organization, but no one at the American Jewish Committee has ever said has ever said all Muslims are anti-Semitic. No one. In fact, Kristen spoke, I think, in the introduction about one of the most powerful moments, certainly in my career, uh, which was in January of 2020 when arm in arm with 65 Muslim leaders from around the world, led by Dr. Mohammed Alisa of Saudi Arabia, the chair of the Muslim World League, we walked together to Auschwitz and to Birkenau. And I can also tell you that uh, right after the World Trade Center, AJC was among the organizations that called on other Americans not to um, allow the belief that all Muslims are terrorists. 19 Muslims perpetrated horrific act with whoever supported them but we made very clear and we did so again and again. And the last thing I will say, sir, is we are actively engaged on a local level across the country through a project we've called the Muslim Jewish Advisory Council. 
precisely to engage with Muslims in a constructive, cooperative way. And we have said as an organization that if the 20th century for us, AJC, was largely defined by, about, by, by writing a new chapter in Christian Jewish relations, in particular Catholic Jewish relations, the 21st century for us is about writing a new chapter in Muslim Jewish relations, and I would add in Israeli-Arab relations as well. We've made some progress, we have more to go, and if you are or are potentially a partner, we'd love to join together. Thank you, sir. Yes, please. Hi, um, your family history is certainly interesting and probably mirrors a lot of people in here, including me, who's, Does it? Who, who are you know, Jewish and came, whose families came from Eastern Europe. But we haven't all taken the same lessons from what our families went through. You, um, you had an organization that supports both the anti-democratic and the unconstitutional, by every court that's ever heard them, um, anti-BDS laws in the states. You had an organization that is silent about Israeli apartheid, and in fact, generally condemns those of us who condemn Israeli apartheid, ethnic cleansing, the issues on the West Bank of stealing homes and property, as opposed to you know, condemning the Israelis for doing it. My question is, though, do you believe that Palestinians are human beings who are entitled to all of the rights that are afforded all human beings under international protocols, including the right to resist occupation as defined in the Fourth Geneva Convention? If you answer no, please explain why. If you answer yes, please tell us where you find in international law the exemption for Palestinians that makes it okay for you to hold the positions about Palestinians that you hold. Okay, well let me begin with the first part because I heard a tone that was a bit dismissive. So let me ask the people in this room, uh, how many of you are the children of, not the grandchildren or great-grandchildren or neighbors of, how many of you are children of two Holocaust survivors? Two. I guess it's not the whole room to begin with. How many of you have members of your immediate family, spouses, who are refugees from an Arab country? Maybe it's not so common, sir, as you might have suggested by your, your framing of the question. I, I'm not here at the City Club to engage in your interpretation of international law, nor am I here to accept what I believe is a libelous description of the State of Israel. Israel is a good country. It's not a perfect country. I'm not here to argue that it is a perfect country, but it has a right to exist. It has a right to defend itself. 
And when you ask the question whether Palestinians do or do not have human rights, the answer is obvious. Of course they do, except for one, the right to deny me my human rights. So if there had been wiser heads that prevailed as early as 1947, when the United Nations grappled with this very issue of two national movements, then we would have uh, been marking today the what? 74th anniversary of a two-state settlement. Had wiser heads prevailed in 1948 when Israel established itself and when it stretched out its hand in peace, we would have had a second chance at a two-state solution, sir. And from 1948 until 1967, the areas that you are speaking about, unless between the lines you're speaking about all of Israel, maybe you'll clarify that on another occasion, the areas that presumably you're speaking about, the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, and Eastern Jerusalem, were not in Israeli hands, sir. A two-state solution could have been created any time unilaterally by the Arab world. The Gaza Strip was under military rule of Egypt, sir. The West Bank was annexed, annexed by Jordan, and that included Eastern Jerusalem. So I would have hoped that had we had this discussion then, you would have been equally vociferous, sir, in calling on the Arab world to liberate the Palestinian Arabs and give them the state of their own, which I wish to see one day, but perhaps unlike you, I wish to see it living alongside Israel and not in place of Israel. I have to get used to this. That's a great line that I have to follow. <laughs> Um, on both the right and the left, there are what used to be fringes that seem to be coming more into the mainstream of both elected representative parties um, that, that seem to be perhaps anti-Semitic here in this country and anti-Israel from an international standpoint. If you look forward 10, 20, 30 years, what do you see from the parties that used to pretty much unanimously be supportive of Israel? What do you see when you look out at those fringes and to the main parties. So thank you. Um, let me take a broader perspective first and then narrow it if I may. I think what we're seeing now here in the United States, and by the way, it's not unique in the United States. We saw it in, Brixen, uh, in, Brixen, in, in, in Britain as a result of Brexit. Uh, we've seen it in other countries, including most recently the vote in Chile. For, for the presidency, we're seeing this massive political polarization. And I believe that that poses an, a, 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 a clear and present danger to democracy. Where did you go? Did you say? There you are. <laughs> we've stopped talking to each other. Even worse, we've stopped listening to each other, except at the city club. We have, even, even more so, we have created our own ecosystems which give us 
um, self-justifying news that we want to hear. So increasingly, we live in a, an informational bubble. We live in a political bubble. And I dare say, increasingly in America, we're creating um, geographic bubbles. We run a risk. And I don't think it's, um, it's crying wolf. We run a risk of, of, of eroding the glue that unites this country. Remember, this is not a country that was founded on the basis of nationality or language or blood. However imperfect, it was a country that was conceived on the basis of an idea. An idea. That's all that unites us. If that idea erodes, what's left? We speak about the gated communities of Florida. I see intellectually gated communities all over America. And that scares the bejeebers out of me. If I could, and I'm very conscious that the next city council president is sitting right opposite me, so maybe I'll do a little lobbying in front of you. I was a high school debater. If I were the principal of a school, a school that I could create for myself, among many other things, I would, I'd make debating mandatory. Not as a club, you know, you got football, you got basketball, you got the glee club, and, and not simply because I did it, but you know what I learned? Because I was assigned a topic and I was assigned a side. I didn't get to choose all my favorite sides. I learned that, you know what, even if I disagreed once in a while, there's some reasonable thinking and some good people on the other side. So I, I've learned to try and look at issues in a more holistic 360 degree way. Few of us do that today. By the way, you didn't ask me, but my school would also make chess mandatory for every child. <laughs> and if you want to ask, I got more ideas. <laughs> um, as far as we're concerned as a Jewish community, sure I worry about the erosion of bipartisan support for Israel. Of course I do. Um, I also worry about the extremes in both political parties and the corrosive effect those extremes can have on the mainstream idea generation in both parties. We have today in the United States House of Representatives people associated with anti-Semitic ideas publicly on both sides of the aisle. So I don't, I don't, I, I'm not asking which side of the aisle you're on, and I'm on neither. But that's dangerous. And it's not just anti-Semitic views, but I'm now speaking as a Jew. And I don't think that the public reaction and the political reaction has been strong enough. We also have in the Congress, and I'm not here, as I said, to defend every action by every Israeli under every circumstance, but I am here to stand up proudly, shoulder to shoulder for the US-Israel relationship and for Israel's well-being, 
we have daily, weekly defamation um, of the state of Israel. At least debate the facts. But I'll leave you with this thought, which is very scary again for the democratic society. I think it was about two years ago, the Oxford English Dictionary, OED, every year comes up with their word of the year, their new word of the year. A couple of years ago, you know what that word was? Post-truth. That was the Oxford English Dictionary word of the year, post-truth. Forgive me, folks, whether you're on the red or blue side, liberal or conservative, how many of us want to live in a post-truth society? Thank you. Uh, as a former Jewish community relations professional, uh, this work, being on the front lines of Jewish advocacy, is incredibly difficult, and it takes an emotional, personal toll on those that are doing the work. What do you see for the future of talent in the Jewish communal world for community relations, Jewish advocacy, given this, and the fact that there are changing opinions among Jewish youth on Israel and on continued unwillingness to consider opinions outside of what may be considered politically correct? Well, <laughs> here I'm going to contradict a part of what I just said a moment ago. I, too, live in a bubble, <laughs> probably more than one. I live in a wonderfully um, uplifting Jewish bubble. Come to AJC. Come to our New York headquarters. Speak to Jillian Laskowitz right here my chief of staff, uh, look at, meet all the young people that are working on the staff of AJC across the country and around the world. Look at the people who are coming to our Leaders for Tomorrow high school programs. Looking at, look at our college programs. Look at our post-college access programs. Believe me, I get that there's an issue out there. I, I also have three children and children-in-law. Uh, I have grandchildren. I, I, I've seen this play out in many ways. But, you know, the Jewish, we may, we may want to mythologize. The Jewish world has never been united. Not in the way we sometimes think. But there is a strong core of proud Jews, including my grandchildren, who are affiliated with the Jewish world, who want to be, who speak Hebrew and are proud of the state of Israel. Uh, and maybe even some of them will want Poppy's job one day. Today at the City Club, we've been listening to a forum featuring David Harris, Chief Executive Officer of the American Jewish Committee. Today's forum is the annual Robert D. Grease Forum on Inspiration, a title given only to those speakers who by his or her achievements reflect a level of accomplishment well beyond exemplary. Next Friday, we will host the last live forum here at the City Club for 2021. We will be conducting an exit interview with David Abbott, the Executive Director at the George Gunn Foundation. He will be in a conversation with Randy McShepard. This forum is sold out, but you are welcome to join us virtually at the City Club at cityclub.org or by tuning in to 90.3 Ideastream Public Media. If you cannot make it next week, please be sure to join us after a short break on Friday, January 7th for our first forum of 2022. 
Cleveland has a whole new generation of diverse leaders and they have a new vision for the future of our city. For many, it starts with our neighborhoods. IdeaStream Public Media's Nick Costelli will be here talking with Tanya Maness of Cleveland Neighborhood Progress, as well as local community development leadership about a comprehensive platform from which all neighborhoods can grow and thrive. Tickets are available for this forum, and you can purchase them and learn more about other forums at cityclub.org. That brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, David Harris, and thank you, members, friends of the City Club. I'm Kristen Baird-Adams, president of the City Club Board of Directors, and this forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.